0: Matthew 27. Alan, if you want to go ahead and put that first slide up there and kill the lights up here, I'd appreciate it. Thank you, Alan. All right, Matthew 26 and Matthew 27. Hey, let's pray one more time. We'll get started. Uh, Lord, as always, uh, you wrote it. Um, Just help us, Lord. You wrote it. Help us just to learn it, to grow in it, and you teach it, Lord, in all ways and all things. We lift this up in your name. Amen. Okay, continue our study here through the book of Matthew. We're going to finish up Matthew 26. We've got a chunk of Matthew 27 going on. Now, we've been in Matthew 26 here for quite some time. It is obviously a long chapter, 75 verses. But we've also been talking a lot about the final moments of Christ's life. If you've been with us in our study in Matthew, we first started doing this when we did the triumphant entry. We were down to the last week of Christ's life. Now here recently, since the Last Supper, we're down to the last day of Christ's life. And now we're down to the last hours of Christ's life. We made this slide up just to kind of remind everybody, because not one gospel account puts all these things in it. You have to combine all four gospel accounts to get this. Now, arrest in the garden, that happened early morning. That's what we covered a couple weeks ago. And after Jesus was arrested in the garden, he went to Annas. Annas used to be the high priest. Quick review here. Rome removed him as being high priest. And they put his son-in-law Caiaphas in. But the Jews still looked at Annas as being a position of power. So they took to Annas first. Annas does this mock little trial. Finds Jesus guilty. Sends them officially to Caiaphas who is the high priest. Same thing. Caiaphas does this mock little trial, finds him guilty, he's beaten, he's tortured. This is all happening in the very early hours of the morning. Now they send him officially to the Sanhedrin and that's where we're at right here. If you look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 27, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate the governor. The Sanhedrin is a group of 70 plus men that would have been the scribes, Pharisees, priests. This was the Jewish governing body, if you will. They did not have the power to put somebody to death. They only had the power to sentence them to death. Remember, the Jews are a conquered nation at this time. So the Sanhedrin says this man is guilty of death. We talked about this last week. It was a fake trial, a false trial, false witnesses, everything. Now they have to take him to Pilate. Pilate is the Roman representative. He is the Roman governor of this area, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Pilate will actually determine if Jesus is put to death. Pilate doesn't want to deal with it. So he sends him to Herod. Herod, and this is not Herod that killed the babies when Jesus was born. This is Herod that killed, this would be his son, this would be Herod that killed John the Baptist. Herod is the, for lack of a better word, the king of the Jews at this time. He has no real power. It's a position that Rome allowed to have, so that way the Jews felt like they still had some type of representation. Jesus does nothing for Herod. The Gospels make it clear. Herod just wanted to see tricks. Jesus did nothing. Herod says, I can't do anything with it, sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate then then pronounces death upon Jesus and sends him to the cross. So from number one to number seven, this is all happening over the span of hours, in the early morning and until the actual mid-morning, just to kind of keep that in the back of your mind. So, this is where we're at. We are left off right around number four and number five. But what we're going to do here is we're going to backtrack just a little bit, because i got a couple points I want to make about Peter. Because what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about four different individuals. Three of them had encounters with Christ. And each one of them responded in a different way with their encounter in Christ. Now, what we're going to do is take a look at these encounters and say, how does this apply to us, and is this us? Let's look at Peter here first, verse 69 of Matthew 26. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again he denied with an oath, saying, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the words of Jesus, who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. We've been talking about Peter for the last few weeks. Just a real quick recap. Peter was the one at the Last Supper that said, Everybody else may leave you, but I won't. I will die for you, Jesus. Peter was the one that a couple weeks ago took out the sword when surrounded by 600-plus Roman soldiers and started cutting off people's ears to defend Jesus. Peter made big words, big statements, and now here Peter is denying him. Now, we've built this up over the last few weeks. If you remember correctly, back to verse 58 of Matthew 26, Peter followed him at a distance. That was the first point we made. Peter following at a distance. It is never safe to follow Jesus at a distance. You want to be as close to Christ as you possibly can. I see so many people that confess Christ, and they confess Christ verbally, but their walk with Christ is at a distance, Jesus is within eyeshot of him. But there's not a close relationship with Christ. You want to be as close to Jesus as you can. What else do we see Peter do? Peter's warming himself by the wrong fire. We talked about it a couple weeks ago, about how there's different fires mentioned in the Bible. The fire of the enemies, the fire of isolation, but ultimately the fire of Jesus. And Peter's warming himself with the wrong people. And last week we talked about the scariest people in the world. Verse 69, servant girls. Servant girls just make Peter cower in fear. Why? Because Peter here is not right where he should be. And so what happens is when the servant girl says, you know Jesus, Peter's Peter's faith just begins to crumble. Now, we've established all this, but what I want to focus on here is verse 75. He went out and wept bitterly. Peter is crushed. Absolutely crushed. Have you ever been crushed spiritually? Just absolutely crushed by what you did. Do you realize the only person surprised when you sin is you? I'm not surprised when you sin. Your family's not surprised when you sin. If you're married, I can tell you right now your spouse is not surprised when you sin. Your kids probably aren't surprised when you sin. Your co workers aren't surprised when you sin. You're the only one surprised when you sin. The other day I said something to Dawn. I said, I just, something happened. I said, I can't believe I did that. Dawn said, I can. You know, she knows me. We're the only people surprised when we sin. Peter, weeping bitterly. He was the only one that thought, I'll never deny him. I'll never forsake him. I'll die for him. Jesus knew he would. But when Peter came to that realization of his sin in verse 75, he goes out and weeps bitterly. Focus on that idea of tears there. Spiritually just broken. Listen, you're going to sin. You're going to mess up. That is a fact. You're going to look at yourself in the spiritual mirror of life and realize who you are. Romans 3 makes it clear. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. There is nothing good in us. There's no not one that seeks after God. There's no self-righteousness in us. And there's going to come a time, either by your choice or circumstances, that's going to be revealed. And you're going to realize, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. What are you going to do with that information? Peter weeps bitterly. He is crushed. He's the first individual we're going to talk about today with this. What does Peter do when he is crushed spiritually? Peter disappears. Peter goes back to fishing. See, Peter used to be a fisherman. If you remember from the Gospel accounts, when they started following Jesus, there was a really big deal. They gave up their nets and all their fishing supplies. It is very symbolic of saying, I'm leaving everything behind to follow Christ. Everything so by Peter going back to fishing, this is not just Peter being bored and saying, I'm just going to go take out my rod and reel and just go try to catch a fish. He is going back to fishing in John chapter 21. Dare I say, he's leaving the ministry. Why? Because I'm just such a failure. I can't do anything. I'm just awful at this. I'm just going to disappear. I'm just going to get away. I don't want to be around anything spiritual. But it still happens today, doesn't it? When we're not where we're supposed to be spiritually, sometimes our first reaction is to disappear. Disappear. Please note, the enemy does not keep you from grocery stores and fast food restaurants. He keeps you from the body of Christ. Because when you are in the body of Christ, there is hopefully encouragement, love, support, but because you know what? There's also conviction. So, what happens when we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing spiritually? We don't want to be around anything spiritual. We want to go back to fishing. And so, sometimes people disappear. I've seen it over the years, I've been a minister. They just slowly disappear out of the body of Christ. Now, the other group, they disappear, but guess what? You can also disappear within the church. You can show up every Sunday and not be here. You can show up and disappear. You can show up and always find a reason to be doing something in the back. You can show up and always find a reason to be doing this or doing that. And it looks very good. I heard a pastor teach one time about dead leaves. In the fall, you always see leaves blowing all over the place. Constant motion, constant activity, but guess what? dead how often do we see that in churches constant motion constant activity but dead so you can disappear within the church as well peter's great response to being crushed spiritually "I'm quitting but we know what happens in john 21 jesus comes back and restores peter and peter goes on in the books of acts and has a wonderful ministry for the lord amen to that but his initial response i should say is to disappear what about the next response Well, verse 1 and 2 we've already talked about there where they go to the Sanhedrin and they go to Pilate. But we have this quick little side. Look at verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple, departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests took the silver pieces and said it's not lawful for them to be in the treasury because they're the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought them with them the potter's field to bury strangers. And potter's field is just what that says. When they were working on pottery back then, and they got something that was broken or did not work out right, it was not usable, they threw it in this field. It wasn't really like a trash heap, but it became unusable because you just kept throwing all those broken pieces of pottery in. So they say, let's buy this. Verse 7, and they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers. And therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the ponderous field, as the Lord directed me. Our first person was Peter. Crushed. Tears. And disappears. Our second person that had to run in with Jesus and realize his sin, Judas. He's crushed as well. But look at the word that's used for him. Verse 3. He was remorseful. Remorseful is different than the word repent. Please understand that. When you talk about the word repent, repent literally means to change, to do a 180. You go a different direction. If this is sin over here, and this is Christ over here, and I'm heading towards sin, I repent. I completely change direction, and I go back towards Christ. That's what the word repent means. What's remorseful mean? Sin's over here. Jesus is over here. I'm walking towards sin, and boy, I feel bad about myself. I really wish I could change. I really wish things could be different, but I keep heading towards it. I say it, I talk about it, but I never make a change in my life. That's remorseful. So now, what you see here is it's different than repent. He felt bad, but there is no change. There's no change in any way whatsoever. Now, he also confesses what he did. Look at verse 4. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He confessed it. But you have to understand the biblical definition of confess. See, the biblical definition of confess means to agree with. So when you say that you confess your sins, what you're saying is, God, I agree with you that what I did was wrong. I see it from your perspective, and I am spiritually wrong. I confess that. We look at the word confess, and we just think, we admit I confess what I did. I admit what I did. See, in verse 4, he's just admitting I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. There's not a spiritual breakdown here. There's not a spiritual repentance. This remorse without repentance. Boy, I, I see it all the time. People come into the office and they're remorseful, they got their hand caught in the cookie jar. And you ask them, Do you want things to be different? Oh, I want things to be different. Do you want things to change? Oh, I want things to change. You talk a little while longer, and I usually ask this. If you didn't get caught, would you be here right now? And they always say, no, I would not be here. I'm here because I got caught. That's remorseful. That's admitting what I did was wrong. Is there a repentance? Is there a confession? See, Peter was crushed. He was crushed to the point he disappeared. Judas is crushed as well, but he doesn't want to change anything, and he doesn't want to take spiritual responsibility for it. Listen, for anybody that has kids or deals with kids, you know what I'm talking about. You've seen kids admit and be remorseful, but not be repentant and not confess. Just the other day, one of my kids hit one of my other boys. I told you, we're all sinners. Now, thankfully, it was one of the little kids that hit one of the bigger kids. There's not much damage there done. But I heard it. I went and I said, what happened? And they said, well, you know, this, this one hit the other one. I said, why? Well, they were playing a game, and the little guy didn't like how the game went. Okay, that's not how you handle things in life, buddy. You can't. Was he remorseful? Oh, he was very remorseful. Did he admit it? He admitted it. Was he repentant and confessed? No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. Now, we still do that as adults, don't we? I feel awful about what I did. So awful that I'm not going to change anything in my life. Remorseful. You know what? I admit what I did. I'm confessing. No, you're admitting what you did. I admit what I did and this is just who I am and you better get used to it. That's not biblical confession. And it can look very sincere. Think of Esau. You guys remember the story of Esau? Jacob stole the birthright from Esau. Esau was supposed to get the birthright, the inheritance. Now it's more than just property and people. What it was is his lineage would include the Messiah. It was a big deal. Esau sold it, the Bible says, for a morsel of food. When Esau realized his mistake, the Bible says that he sought repentance with tears, but could find none. I've seen it over the years. People come in and talk, and they are just completely broken. Tears, everything. But they're not repentant. They're remorseful. They admit it, but they don't confess it. Greg Laurie had a wonderful devotion. I don't know if you guys read Greg Laurie's devotion or not, but he had a wonderful one this week on it, and I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to read a little bit of it. He goes, we read of people in the Bible who were sorry, but they weren't repentant. For example, a hardened Pharaoh admitted his sin. In Exodus we read, Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he confessed. The Lord is the righteous one and my people and I are wrong. Yet Pharaoh went on to deliberately sin against God and his people. And insincere King Saul admitted his sin, saying to Samuel, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions in the Lord's command. But I didn't stop Saul from going on a collision course with judgment. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked how to have eternal life. When Jesus told him, he went away sorrowful, but not repentant. He wasn't willing to change. These people weren't excuse me. These people were experiencing what the apostle Paul called quote worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Second Corinthians seven ten. There is a difference between remorse and repentance. This is important to understand. People are sorry when their sin catches up with them. They are sorry when they begin to reap what they sow. But that doesn't necessarily mean they are repentant. If you are truly sorry in a godly way, then you will not only have remorse for what you have done, but you will also change your behavior. That's the truth. Judas is remorseful. Judas is sad. Judas admits. But he doesn't change anything at all. So we have Peter, who is broken and disappears. Thankfully, he comes back. We have Judas, who is broken and is remorseful, but doesn't change. Now let's introduce ourselves to what Pilate does. Verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him, Not one word. So that the governor marveled greatly. Now, I'm not going to recap what we did last week. We talked about this. Prophecy fulfilled. It says in the book of Isaiah, just as the lamb is silent before the shearers, that's what Jesus was. But we also talked about how Jesus did respond sometimes. And if you remember, we went to Proverbs. And we talked about wisdom. Wisdom is knowing what to say, when to say it, how to say it, and even if to say it at all. Sometimes there's wisdom in saying nothing, and sometimes there's wisdom in saying, I'm going to take a stand right now. Jesus knew when to say something and when not. At this situation, he chose to say nothing. We know in other gospel accounts, him and Pilate do have some dialogue. Let the Lord lead your words on when to say it, how to say it, and even if to say it at all. Verse 15, Now, at the feast of the governor, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Other gospel accounts tell us that Barabbas was a thief, a murderer, and a rebel. Verse 17, therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? This is a political move by Rome. They knew the Passover was a big deal for the Jews. So Rome would say, This is how kind and considerate we are as a conquering nation. We will release one prisoner to show you our benevolence. Who do you choose? Well, what happens, verse 18? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Now, this gets established more in the book of Acts. But these Pharisees, Sadducees, Sanhedrin, scribes, priests, they were envious of Judah, of Jesus. Envious of the relationship he preached that people could have with God the Father. Envious of their own power and prestige being taken away. What happens next? Verse 19, While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to him, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water, washed his hands before the multitude, and said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. I'm telling you right now, verse 25 is a pretty powerful verse. His blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Here's our third person we're talking about this morning. Pilate. I don't know how you see Pilate. Is Pilate a man who just doesn't care? This is just some Jewish guy I have to deal with. Is this a man who's very political? That the best thing to do is for me to crucify Christ and to scourge him? And we'll get into scourging more next week about the horrors of that. Is this man that's weak? He can't take a stand? There's kind of a lot of things going on here with Pilate. Let's look at the facts of Pilate. First thing you see in verse 19, his wife coming to him saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Pilate was warned. Was warned. Stay away from this. Don't get involved in this. Pilate's own words say, it's not my fault. Look at verse 24. I am innocent of the blood of this just person you see to it. Pilate, I wash my hands of this man's blood. I want nothing to do with it. Let's just build on this real quick. Keep your hand here in Matthew 27. Just jump ahead to the Gospel of John. John 18. John's account makes it clear what Pilate really thinks. John 18. Three verses. Take a look at this quick tour of John 18 and 19. Look at Pilate's response in John 18, verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? When he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Okay? Jump ahead to John 19. Look at verse 4. Pilate went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know. I find no fault in him. And then verse 6, same chapter. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Who's Pilate? Peter's the guy, when he saw his sin, he was surprised that he sinned. It broke him. He disappeared. I can't do this. I can't be the dad, the father, the whatever you called me to be. I'm just an awful, horrible person. I'm going back to fishing. Judas was the guy, when he saw his sin, was so sad, so remorseful, but never spiritually did anything with it. Pilate's the guy that when he sees his sin, he says, what, me? No. No, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. Pilate's the guy that does no wrong in any way whatsoever. I have met two people, two people in the 24 years that I've been saved that told me they have never sinned. Two people. And as soon as they tell me that, I want to say, well, you just sinned right there, you lied. But it's not really the right time in the context there. First John makes it clear that if you say that you have no sin, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. We're all sinners. Now, what I run into most of the time are people who admit they're sinners. But have you ever seen the prideful sinner? Listen, I know I'm not the best husband father I could be and I know I drop the ball a lot, but I'm really trying spiritually. Wow, you are the most humble, prideful sinner I've ever met. I'm so proud of you. It's the people that come in and want to talk, and they have no fault in the relationship, in the marriage, or at work, or at home. It's it's never their fault. Listen, anything I do is just a reaction to what people push me into. I would not respond that way if she wouldn't say that. Or you know what? I wouldn't be this way. I wouldn't react that way if people wouldn't do this or that. So it's really never my fault. I wash my hands of this because really the problem is all them, not me. That's a dangerous place to be. Dangerous place. Proverbs chapter 9, verses 8 and 9 say this, paraphrasing, a wise man accepts a rebuke. A wise man is willing to listen and say, I could be wrong in this situation. I could be the problem. I could be a major part of the problem. Pilate was not that guy. I find no fault in him. This guy has done no wrong. And I've done no wrong too, by the way, everybody. I wash my hands of this. But Pilate, you just beat an innocent man by your own words. You just put an innocent man on the cross by your own words. Yeah, but I wash my hands of it. I have nothing to do with this. Boy, oh boy. That's the third person. When they are presented with their sin, it's not that they're surprised they sin. It's not that they're not repentant like Judas they just can't believe they would ever sin like that. Not me. I tell you, that third one is dangerous. Because they're the ones that have convinced themselves that everything they do is right and spiritual. And so therefore, it's always someone else's fault. Those are the three people that ran into Jesus. The first one was so broken, said, I quit. I'm going back to fish. And The second one was so remorseful, took his own life. The third one was so innocent, could not even believe what he did was wrong. Let's talk about the fourth person. Can you go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11? 2 Samuel chapter 11 is the story of David. He may not have a run-in with Jesus, but he has a run-in with sin. And let's look how he responds. 2 Samuel chapter 11. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, you have the very famous story of David and Bathsheba. David does everything wrong in this chapter. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see right from the beginning the sin of David. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with them, and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't sound like much. But we said right from the beginning, David's first sin was the sin of laziness. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle... David should have been at the front leading his men. But what's David doing? He's staying in Jerusalem. And what's he doing in verse 2? He's taking a nap. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed. So the first sin you see of David's life was the sin of laziness. What's the next sin? Well, then he sees Bathsheba over on the roof, verse 2. His next sin was the sin of lusting. Okay, now this just builds. You know what happens. So then he brings Bathsheba over, finds out that what happens here is she has to she gets pregnant, she's going to have to take care of Uriah, that's Bathsheba's husband, husband. so now David's now going to lie, he's going to get Uriah murdered, and then he's just going to continue on like nothing ever happened. The sin of laziness, the sin of lusting, the sin of lying, and then what happens in verse 27, and when her mourning was over, David sent brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David is in sin, okay? Just like Peter, just like Judas, just like Pilate, he's in sin. Now, what's David going to do when the mirror shows him his sin? In walks Nathan the prophet. Nathan the prophet is one of the best guys in the Old Testament. He doesn't get enough attention. Now, we're not going to say everything that Nathan said, but he comes in in front of David and he says, David, I want to tell you a story. David says, sure, tell me a story. Verse 1, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had everything. But the poor man only had this one little lamb. Took care of it, nourished it, cherished it, grew up with his children, ate its own food, slept with it. Just this lamb was everything. Well, then verse 4, a traveler comes to the rich man, and the rich man says, I don't want to sacrifice one of my own sheep. No. I'm going to go take the poor man's only lamb, take it from him, And sacrifice it. Verse 5. David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan. As the Lord lives. The man who has done this shall surely die. David says. I can't believe this is happening in my kingdom. Some rich guy is taking some guy's only lamb. And taking it stealing it from him. This guy is going to die. Look at verse 7. Nathan said to David. You are the man. Can you imagine what was going through David's heart? See, right there, you are the man, verse 7. Now he's at the same place that Peter was, Judas was, Pilate was. He's been shown his sin. Remind ourselves, what did Peter do? I'm going back fishing. I can't handle this. I'm such a failure. What did Judas do? I'm so remorseful and sad I can't go on living. What did Pilate do? I didn't do anything wrong. What does David do when he has shown his sin? Jump ahead to verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Wow, how simple is that? David repents, David confesses. Not remorse, not admitting, an actual repent and confess and is then restored in the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And how do we know that David meant it? Go with me to Psalm 51, please. Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a psalm that David wrote after this happened. If you are ever caught up in sin and you are just feeling broken of all broken, go to Psalm 51 and realize the love, grace, and mercy of Jesus Christ. If you know somebody who's caught up in sin and they can't move past it, take them to Psalm 51 to show them the beauty of forgiveness. Psalm 51, look at the beginning, look at the introduction to the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. This is what David wrote after his sin was found out. Verse 1, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Jump ahead to verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. We knew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. That's repentance, that's confession, and that's restoration. Of the four people we looked at this morning, we have to stop and ask ourselves now, which one are we? You're going to sin. It is. It's a fact that's going to happen. You have flesh on these bones. And Until you are in your glorified body in heaven, you are going to fail. I'm going to fail. Now, when that happens, are you going to be like, Peter, I can't believe I sinned. Are you just going to give up and quit and disappear? Are you going to be like Judas, just full of such remorse that you just don't do anything? Are you going to be like Pilate, full of pride? I didn't do anything wrong. It's all them. Or are you going to be like David? I sinned. I am wrong, I confess it, I repent, I'm looking for restoration, and Lord, I want to move forward in you. And in fact, what I'm going to do, Lord, is this, verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Lord, I'm going to take the failures of my life that have been forgiven and restored in you, and now I'm actually going to go out in ministry and say, I want to represent Jesus because I am the picture of grace and mercy and God's forgiveness. Which one are we going to do? Now, maybe that's you this morning. If not, it's going to be you at one time, because that's just going to happen. Maybe it's somebody you know. What are you going to do? Do we have enough guts to go be Nathan the prophet? Oh, it's hard to do. Remember Proverbs 9, 8 and 9, a wise man will listen to rebuke and heed it. It is never fun to go be Nathan the prophet to somebody. In the years I've been a pastor, I have been yelled at, cursed at, hung up on on the phone, all because I just want to tell them the truth of what's going on in their lives. That's just dawn. Imagine now, the body. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I told the 8.30 I wasn't going to do that joke at the 10 because it's recorded, but uh, she doesn't listen to the messages anyway. Um, the boys listen to the messages. They'll come out, it'll be like 9.30, Dad, I can't believe you said that about Mom. And I'll be like, don't tell her. Um, It's going to happen. I'm telling you right now, it is going to happen. When you try to go represent truth to someone, a wise man will listen, will heed the rebuke. They will. But you're also going to run into a lot of people that don't want to hear it. Now, please make sure this is another teaching for another day. When you're going to be the Nathan the prophet to somebody, make sure you're spirit led. Make sure you're biblical. Make sure it's done in love. I've seen a lot of people go out and speak truth, but not in love. Ephesians says, speak truth in love. I've seen a lot of people go out and speak love and not speak truth. It's a balance there, guys. The truth of Scripture, but also the love of Christ. When you go represent Jesus to someone, being Nathan the prophet, I hope they listen to you. Be prayed up and ready for it. And if you're the person that's going to hear that rebuke, listen, the flesh, as soon as it's rebuked, never wants to hear that. But we need to stop and say, okay, how am I going to respond? Peter, Judas, Pilate, or David? How am I going to respond to this? And those are the four men we looked at this morning here that show us the different reactions we can have. I sure hope and pray we go the route of David. I have sinned against the Lord. I repent, I confess, and I'm restored. Worship team, if we come forward. This puts us in good shape for next week in Matthew 27. We'll start in verse 27. We're going to talk about Christ on the cross. What it really was like for Jesus on the cross and what does that look like and what does that mean for us. As the worship team's getting ready, let's pray this into our lives. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. Help us to live it, not just to speak it.